Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can hear us and stream us live and in the moment at RadioNorthland.org. And if you're not in the moment, you can also listen to our replays that are available on the Wrestling Memories page. There at RadioNorthland.org. Also part of the TuneIn family, too. You can listen to us live and in the moment there as well. Glenn Broggett, yes, back and ready to go. And this week, a little bit of a somber tone here uh, on the Wrestling Memories then and now. Uh, somber because we lost another of the great wrestlers uh, to the great ring in the sky. Uh, he'll be main eventing, I know it, and uh, even competing in the double ring battle royal. It's uh, a, a time that we are, uh, you know, feeling sad, but we're also going to take this time today to celebrate a man, uh, we're going to celebrate his life, his career. We're going to get down to it uh, with a guy who knew the man, and it was a very, very big uh, fan uh, growing up and had a chance to uh, get to be, uh, like I said, a close friend with with the man through the years and uh, has some very special things he wants to share, as well as celebrate uh, this career of a man who uh, made his mint wearing the mask being the heel, being a, a man who is quite intelligent and quite sensational. And to help us, of course, I got to introduce my co-host, my partner in crime. He's back in the chair this week to help us uh, remember the life of the legendary Dick Beyer. I'm talking about Mr. George Shire, author and historian. Thank you so much for taking some time out on this very special edition. And this one, uh, really, honestly, uh, through the exchanges we've had, uh, you know, since the passing, this one really, uh, really hit you in the heart. And uh, well, well music of the program of course and let's let's celebrate this man thank you so much glenn Braggett. you know um i'm wondering as you were talking about the destroyer and leading up to that and dick Byer, real name if uh do you think there's a parts unknown in heaven I ha- you have to think, you know, with all of these guys that have uh, left us in, in their career and in their finest moment, we never could quite find out the address of Parts Unknown. You got to think that uh, there's a nice spread waiting for uh, the uh, destroyer Dick Byer uh, up there in that uh, region of Parts Unknown. And there's got to be a, a pretty cool little hangout in place because, I mean, you got the baby faces, you got the heels, but you got to have the Parts Unknown, right? Well, and you know, there was such a highly populated uh city somewhere here in the world that we live in parts unknown for all of these great great masked wrestlers and you know one of the things that i learned a long time ago glenn is that if you really wanted to pick one major thing that defined the difference between today's product of wrestling and yesterday's product of wrestling it's the great gimmick of the masked wrestlers. They're back in the day, and we're talking probably from the 40s, move into the 50s, really into the 60s, and then the 70s. The, the masked wrestler gimmick, and because wrestling was presented as real and perceived as real by so many, uh, the mask gimmick went over so well in territories all around the country and not only in the United States, but all over in Japan and Australia and New Zealand and other, other countries as well. Having a masked wrestler come into the territory at certain times was really something that fans bought into the promoters, the promotions, the wrestlers themselves could sell it. And it was really so, uh, it was really innovative. 
And there was one guy, one guy that among all of the assassins and stompers and stranglers and Mr. X's and, you know, just every imaginable name that these guys could come up with. There was one guy that probably defined it better than any other masked man. Uh, and that was Dick Byer. Uh, you know, Bill Miller did it so well various times during his career. Jody Hamilton did it so well as the assassin, Tom Renesto. We had interns. We had masked medics. We had other destroyers. But only Dick Byer did it in probably the most unique way of them all in that when he put on that destroyer mask in June of 1962, he basically never looked back and never took it off as far as the public eye, both here in the U.S. and a lot in Japan, where he became a national hero for good 20 years. But he did it differently in the sense that because of his drawing power as the destroyer, he had a, a, a deal with every promotion he ever worked with that he would not, like all the rest would, eventually take off the mask and reveal who was under it. And because he did draw so well and because of his being different in the, in the sense that he wasn't a, a roughneck type wrestler, he wasn't a brawler, so to speak, like so many of the other masked wrestlers were and, and were perceived, he basically was a scientific wrestler, to use that term, and he would break a rule here and there, but he was calmer, collective on his interviews. He wasn't a raving, ranting, a ranting maniac like so many of them. And he could draw the people in because he gave that perception that he could win. And, you know, if I compared him to anybody, he was probably like Nick Bockwinkle, where Nick could wrestle. And you knew he could win without cheating, but he cheated a little bit. And that was what was effective for him. And so the destroyer would never unmask. And if he left a territory, it would just be that he lost a loser leave the territory match, or he just disappeared for a while, or maybe he was injured, but he never took the mask off. And, and that, that was something that most promoters would never do with any other masked wrestler. And Eventually, a, they had to unmask. And that's a big tip of the hat to him, too, for just how much he respected uh, this character, this persona that he created, and what he built with this persona as far as uh, the deals that he made with the promoters and stuff to keep the mask. Don't go for some hot shot sort of thing at the end of a feud or end of a run where it ends up, uh, you know, you know, establish basically affecting his bottom line to continue his character. But you know what? The thing I find just very amusing, you know, reading about his life was just how about how his initial reluctance to put on the mask and how his earlier experience when he first put the hood on, you know, if he would have uh, just kind of uh, 
stuck to his guns and, and just walked away from it. You know, this whole thing wouldn't have happened. I mean, yes, he had the great all-star background and he was a collegiate star and athlete and could have done it, you know, without the mask. But just how important it was to tell the tale about how initially reluctant he was to putting on the hood. But once uh, they found that perfect mask for him, how, how things just kind of changed the course of his career. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because when you mentioned that he was a collegiate wrestler and a good amateur wrestler, you know, if you just took Dick Beyer from the time he debuted in the business in around 1954, he, he was a good wrestler. He was, he was in the mold of a Vern Gagne and a Wilbur Snyder and, and a Pat O'Connor. But for whatever reason, you know, if you looked at him, he wasn't the biggest guy in the business. You know, he was uh, probably just six foot. He was uh, uh, just an average built wrestler, so to speak. And he was by no means a monster, but he just didn't have that, that little oomph that he needed to move up on the cards to get over in a territory other than Buffalo and around that era, around that area where he was able to... Um, you know, be the main star because of being around his hometown area in Syracuse and Akron and around that territory and Omaha or not Omaha, um, Cleveland, etc. So when the story of his mask, it, it's such an interesting one. In fact, it's funny because right before, when he was wrestling in Hawaii in 1962, he had received a, a, a note, a call from the promoter in Los Angeles that he had been recommended to go there by of all people, Mad Dog Vashon and Mad Dog said, this is a guy that would do good in the territory. You should give him a call. So he gets the call and Dick Beyer is prepared to go into Los Angeles. He actually went out and had some, uh, eight by 10 publicity photos made. There were four different poses that he sent along with his acceptance and went into to go into Los Angeles. I'm going to take a sidebar there and say that I was very pleased and surprised about oh, seven or eight years ago when Dick Beyer actually sent me a copy of each of those four pictures, four eight by tens, and told me that I needed them for my wall of fame. And he put a little note in the, in the envelope. He said that they were taken right before he went into Los Angeles. And he had assumed that he was going there as Dick Beyer. Well, as he got to, to Los Angeles, as many promoters would do back in that era, they would say to a wrestler, well, here's what we're going to do with you. Here's how we want to, you know, what push we're going to give you and we're going to see what happens and, and so on. When Dick got there, he said, uh, he was told by, uh, Jewel Strongbow, the promoter, um, you're not going to be Dick Beyer. You're going to be a guy named the destroyer and you're going to wear this outfit. He hands Dick a hood attached to a bodysuit that attached in the crotch area. What? If you, if you can explain this, it was almost like a full hooded bodysuit that device. had a, a that went around his legs in the crotch and that's where it was put together. And as Dick explained it to me, he said it was the material like a potato sack. Oh. 
Now, you know, if you picked up a potato sack, you know that itchy, scratchy type material. Uh And Dick says, so he was told that he was going to go into the ring and he was going to wrestle in this outfit, which he did. And during the course of the match, he said, I was never so uncomfortable in my life. I sweat. I, I was scratching. It was irritating my skin. And he said, I went through the match and I, when I got done, I went back into the dressing room and I literally just ripped this outfit off and I threw it over in a corner and I said, that's it. I'm never wearing that thing again. And he said, I can't see out of the mask. I mean, it was terrible. The irony of it is that sitting in the locker room was a guy, a a wrestler, a journeyman wrestler, a good, a good hand, but somebody that never really hit the big time per se, Mm -hmm. a guy by the name of Ox Anderson, first name Don, but he went by Ox Anderson. Well, Ox had used a mask a couple of times in his career, just for, you know, sometimes promoters would just bring in a mask guy for a couple of cards and just have no purpose in, in where they were going to go with it or if they were going to stay with it. And that's what happened in Ox's case. So he reaches into his uh, duffel bag and he says, Dick, try this. And he threw him a, a mask. Dick put it over his head. And what it was is it was a, a mask that was very similar to what we later came to see as the destroyer's mask. And if you're familiar with the destroyer's face, he always wore a white mask with round cutouts for his eyes. His nose was exposed and he had a a generous cutout by his mouth where he could talk and move. And then he would have a, uh, a color stripe around on the top of the mask going around the eye holes, etc. And the color usually would be red or blue or green And it would also be the color of his trunks then for that particular match. If he had a red stripe, he had red trunks, blue, etc. And then he would wear white boots. And that became the destroyer outfit. So he tries this mask on that Ox Anderson gives him. And he really said, you know what, I can breathe in this. And it seemed to be sort of a stretchy material. And Dick asked him what it was. And Ox Anderson said, it's made from a woman's girdle. Now, today, to, in today's world, I don't even know if girdles exist anymore. <laughs> you got me. But I, I don't know if they do. But if, if anyone remembers what a woman's girdle was like, it was a stretchy material. And Dick said, this is something I could work with. Well, he took it to the next level, and he and his wife then went to several of the department stores in the Los Angeles area. Dick specifically said they went to Woolworths. So there's a a name for a department store from the past. But he said, we went to Woolworths and we're in the woman's department. And he says, there I am with my wife and we're checking out women's girdles. And they bought them up. And his wife then went home and made these masks as we described it earlier. 
And the stretchy part of it was nice because when he put it on, he could go down around his throat neck area with a drawstring where he could tighten it. But when you'd pull on the top of the mask, it would stretch and it would seem like you're going to be able to pull it off, but you couldn't. And it just became the ideal thing. So that's how the mask came about. And then he was satisfied being the destroyer. I think what we're looking for, I think nowadays, the equivalent of a girdle, I think they call them Spanx or something. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm reaching <laughs> okay. out there. Yeah, yeah. See, look at me. I'm the modern man, huh? <laughs> well, there you go. Well, I want to get- And you just taught me something, if that's true. Well, you know what? You teach me a lot, my friend. So uh, this, consider this a, a payment back, a monthly installment. All right. All right. Well, I want to talk about, you know, getting the mask, you know, finding that comfort, uh, finding, you know, a mask that works for the head for him. Uh, that's one thing. Now, getting the character over, getting the destroyer over, how how long was it uh, as far as the time frame when he did uh, don the mask to getting over? And what uh, can you remember for, for some of the earlier feuds? Uh, I mean, we're talking about Los Angeles, of course. When I think of like Los Angeles at that time, I also think of a guy uh, who uh, definitely made his mint, Freddie Blassie. Uh, does he? How, where does he fit in the picture as far as Dick goes? And what as far as getting over? How long did that, that take for him once he put the mask on? Well, he was almost an immediate success. And of course, that was part of the plan, too, as they wanted to put him over. And, you know, he had the he had the stipulation that, like most mass wrestlers did, that he would never unmask unless he was beaten in two submission falls or two two uh, pin falls. And, and the majority of the matches in that era were two of three fall matches. So, they were always able to protect the mask by a, one of the falls being a disqualification or being a count out of the ring, you know, all of those things that they used to swerve the, the, the win for the opponent. But yes, Freddie Blassie was instrumental in being one of his very first opponents. And bear in mind that the destroyer was usually the heel. And he had legendary matches with guys like Edward Carpentier, Cowboy Bob Ellis, uh, Bobo Brazil. You know, he, he just, he became the top star in California. But one of the things that was to Dick's credit is that he knew when it was time to move on. And one of the things that was great about that uh, territorial era is that wrestlers generally, except for the three or two or three or four mainstays in a territory, which everyone had, he knew when it was time to move on for a while and, you know, start fresh somewhere else and then maybe come back at a later date. And, and that was what he did so well. And so he had this success as he traveled around the country for the next five years from about, well, from 1962 until 67 when he was eventually he ended up in the wwa which was the world wrestling alliance promoted in indiana by uh what fans didn't know at the time but the promoters were dick the bruiser and wilbur snyder and which was interesting too because in those early years snyder and bruiser were actually opponents most of the time and yet they were co-owners of the territory so that was fun on the sidelines but here comes the destroyer and he also had the the foresight to say you know what we can try something different he would never unmask 
And they never asked him to because they realized that they had such a top hand. In 19, just back up a bit. In 1964, he was back in Los Angeles and working a lot of tag team matches at that time. And he teamed with guys like Don Manukian. Now, that may not be a big name to a lot of wrestling fans, but Manukian was a former football player who didn't have the longest wrestling career, but when he transitioned into wrestling was a great, great worker around the California era area. And uh, Dick really enjoyed working with him and they made a great tag team. He also had a tag team run with a guy named Art Mahalik. And he was another big star in the San Francisco and Los Angeles area. And then one of his most famous partners, hard-boiled Haggerty, and they wrestled together. And I'll tell you a story about their team later on. But he goes into uh, the WWA, has a good run with the Bruiser and Snyder's group as the Destroyer. And here was the unique thing. The WWA being owned by the Bruiser and the AWA being owned by Vern Gagne, they jointly owned the Chicago territory, Chicago City. So they were promoters behind the scenes. Chicago fans always had this unique ability to see some AWA wrestlers on their cards, and they would see some WWA wrestlers on their cards. And that was the only city in either of the two promotions that had that luxury. Well, as it comes, the destroyer was in Chicago and he actually worked his way up to an AWA title match with Vern Gagne. And I mean, the destroyer had beaten guys like Rene Goulet and Reggie Parks and Wilbur Snyder and Jack Lanza at the time, who was still a good guy. He gets a title shot. And as the story goes, Vern Gagne met with him after the match with Dick Beyer and Dick or Vern was impressed. You know, here comes this, this good wrestler. And we all have to remember that Vern Gagne always emphasized wrestling first gimmick second, but Dick was the exception to a gimmick because he could also wrestle. And that really, you know, lit Vern Gagne's eyes up. So he met with him and he told Dick, he says, I'd love to have you come into Minneapolis. And when I say Minneapolis, I'm talking AWA, but it was the Minneapolis headquarters, and that's what he meant. So Dick says, well, I'd, I'd love to come in. You know, and you got to remember, too, that back in the late 60s, all through the 70s, the AWA, and this isn't bragging because it was my home territory, it's, it's a fact that most wrestlers of that era, the AWA was where they longed to be in at least for some of their career because it was a good pay territory and it was uh, a, not a, uh, as strict of a schedule or a stre as strenuous a schedule as most other territories had for, for work. So Dick was excited about the fact Vern told him though, well, you know, when the run was over, you'd have to unmask. And that's where they had a little bit of a, okay, this isn't going to happen moment. And Dick basically told him, I am not taking the destroyer mask off. And he, he explained his reasons. 
that for five years, this is how I've made my living. And I've been in Texas. I've been in Detroit. I've been uh, in California. I've been in Japan. I'm not taking the mask off. Well, Vern comes up with the idea that what if we brought you in as a different wrestler? And between the two of them, they came up with the mask guy, Dr. X. Now, the only part that Vern still asked then was when the Dr. X uh, run would come to an end, would Dick unmask? And Dick agreed. So he never unmasked his entire career as the destroyer. And in that era, even though there were rumors at times that, okay, Dick Beyer was the destroyer, generally speaking to the mainstream fans, it was a secret and it kept, it was kept a secret. So having Dr. X unmasked and never ever coming close to saying they were the same guy, it worked. And that was the agreement that was made. So they came up with a very creative way for Dr. X to come in. To well, the AWA. Well, it's ingenious because, you know, he's able to keep the Destroyer moniker, and it's something that he's been building now. At this point, when he was entering into the AWA, he had already been in Japan. He started his early run in Japan. And, of course, we'll get to that a little bit later in the 70s where uh, his popularity blew up. I mean, but it started. It started in the early 60s pre-AWA in Japan. And, uh, wow, you want to talk about uh, getting some television ratings? In a, you know, today, everything was all about the ratings, you know. Uh, that was what fueled the, the companies in the 90s and 2000s. Well, let's go back and th- talk about his run making it j- to Japan and, and, and quite possibly one of the biggest matches in television, not just for pro wrestling in Japan, but for, for television in general. Well, and the thing about the Japan deal, that started in, you know, after 1962 and in 63 and 64, uh, Dick was over in Japan as the destroyer and just was really over with those fans. What was different about that, Glenn, is that during the 60s and the 70s, Japan, as we know, with the two or three promotions that were always active over there, wrestling was huge. And they would always bring in American wrestlers, usually on a a three, four, five, six-week tour. And at any given time, you'd have six or eight American wrestlers that would go over there not not always from the same territory here in the United States either. Um, you'd get a couple from the AWA that would go over. You might get somebody from Texas and someone from Los Angeles and someone from Florida, however it worked out. But when they went over to Japan, they were, they were heels on Jap- Japanese soil. And all of the Japanese wrestlers were, of course, the local heroes. And so... What was unique about it is that you saw some strange, you know, if you, we never, we never knew this at the time, but when you look in hindsight now at results, you see that you'd have a, uh, a guy named, you know, like Buddy Austin, who was Buddy Killer Austin and just one of the best heels in the U.S. And he'd be teamed up with somebody like Wilbur Snyder or something like that. And you'd see all these strange uh, marriages over there but you'd never know about it and you'd never, you never hear about it. The destroyer goes over and for whatever reason, he just, he clicked with the Japanese people. And before you know it, he was on the Japanese side. He was with giant Baba. He was with Anoki, and he was always with them and not 
the American wrestlers. So as a result, he became just a cult hero over there and even had a television show. It was a, I wish I could think of the name of it, uh, but it was the destroyer TV show. And he, he did little skits and different things and, and he advertised for products over there and he, he just became part of their culture. So he spent a lot of time over there, but when he was in the United States, he was always still a heel, but as I said, kind of a scientific heel. And when he took a break from being the destroyer, he, um, the way he and Vern put it together was something that probably in today's world where the world is so much bigger than it used to be. And I say bigger because we know everything just click the you know, internet and you can find anything out. But back then they pulled it off and nobody was the wiser and they just decided they were going to have Dick sit in the TV audience at the, uh, television studios where all-star wrestling was uh, taped every week and, and put together at the Calhoun beach studios in Minneapolis, where WTCN 11 was the primary station in that, in that era. And so here you have uh, the usual formula that was in most territories where you'd have a, a main wrestler take on a enhancement talent wrestler, commonly known as a jobber. And they were uh, just matches to showcase the, the main guy. And then he'd have an interview for two or three minutes. And they put together the matches that you'd go to the auditorium to see. So here in the front row for one show is a guy in a suit, tie, coat, everything. And he's got a mask on his face. And he's sitting right smack in the middle on the front row in August of 1967. TV announcers, Marty O'Neill and Roger Kent, during that first sighting of this masked man, simply made the comment, there's a fan over and sitting in the front row there with a mask on. No other comment made. Just made that reference during the commentary on the show. We get to week number two, and they make the comment that, well, I see that guy with the mask on is still sitting at ringside. He must really be a fan and no other comment. We get to week number three. For whatever reason, the mask guy wanders over during one of the interview segments that Marty O'Neill was going to conduct. He's in his suit, tie, and the mask. And he very, and, and let's point out that it's not the destroyer mask now. This is just a, a black mask with a nose piece in it, much uh, tighter spacings between the eyes and the mouth and no markings on it. And he just comes to the interview area and as politely as can be, he says to Marty O'Neill, I'd like to have a match with one of these wrestlers. And Wally Carbo, the promoter comes out and says, sir, you're going to have to have a seat, take your seat back there. And, uh, you know, we're doing a program here. And he goes back to his seat. Get to the next week. Here comes this masked guy to the interview area again. He says, I'd like to have a match with one of these wrestlers. You know, I, I'd like to take one of these guys on. He's escorted back to his seat by the security officer, Bob O'Brien, who was the police officer on duty at the studio all the time. 
and he's put in his seat. Well, on this same program, it just so happened that the AWA world champion at the time, Vern Gagne, who is Mr. Popularity in at least Minneapolis, he's wrestling against a veteran wrestler by the name of Jack Pesek. They have a great match. And it was actually a scientific match as Jack Pesek was a real good worker. Vern, as most fans knew at the time, had two very potent finishing maneuvers. One of them was to deliver a drop kick or two drop kicks. And then he would apply his famous sleeper hold to his opponent in the center of the ring. And of course, in those days, the sleeper hold meant the match was over. Well, as his sleeper hold is applied, this mask guy in the front row, this masked fan, jumps up onto the ring apron, goes up onto the top rope, and comes down on the back of Vern Gagne's neck. Vern falls to the canvas, and this masked guy immediately gets on the mat, puts on a figure four leg lock, and he will not release it. Vern, who is groggy from his hit in the back and having this hold applied, eventually concedes, says, I give up, I quit. And the mass man is pulled off by a couple of referees and hauled out of the, you know, the area. They're taking Vern Gagne out for medical treatment. You know, they play this up so good on TV and, oh my gosh, what is wrong with this crazed fan? The guy comes out onto the interview area and he starts a little bit louder and a little more boastful to Marty O'Neill and says, for several weeks, I told you I wanted to wrestle. And I'm paraphrasing here, Glenn, but you know, I've told you I wanted to wrestle one of these wrestlers. I told you, and you keep treating me like an idiot. And I just beat his, his famous words. I just beat your world champion. Wally Carbo comes out in Mar in Mar in Wally's also oh great way of, you know, sort of stammering and stuttering and, you know, being flustered by this turn of events. And he tells the mask guy, he says, I don't know who you think you are, but if you want a match, you're going to wrestle the crusher. And this would have been next week's main event that they're advertising for the show. So on this August date, a week later, it is simply billed in the program as Masked Man against the Crusher. The Crusher, who by that time was Mr. Popularity, and everybody who was any, any heel of note always had a program with the Crusher. So the fans are thinking, you know, here's this masked guy, and the Crusher's going to dispatch of him, and it's going to be over. The Crusher played it up on the interviews. He specifically said, if that guy with the sock on his head wants to be in a wrestling match, we're going to end his career right away. Well, surprised, the masked man won that following week against, of all people, the crusher. Got the victory. And then he comes out on his interviews after that. Marty asked him, he said, well, what is your name? Who are you? Why the mask? His answer if people knew who I was, they wouldn't accept a match with me. And I've got a great background. Well, what's your name? And the masked man simply says, you can call me Dr. X. And that's what he became. 
that's just a smooth way to uh, to insert uh, you know a, a character into the mix and to get him into uh, up, up towards a, a viable contender for Vern because the logical steps is you don't want to just throw a championship uh, match his way you build him up and you have him against guys like the Crusher and also uh, involved in the mix here as as, as his run in AWA went. Uh, you know, just when you thought, uh, you know, it was going to go as planned. I mean, there was another little bit of a wrench and it came by way of uh, a family member, a brother-in-law. Can you talk a little bit about how family got into uh, in, into Dick's life? Not necessarily in storyline, but just in in-ring action. Well, the first thing you have to remember is that after this Crusher confrontation, now we've got the storyline is, is that there are other wrestlers that want to have a chance to wrestle against this guy who thinks he's a good wrestler. We don't know who this guy is. And they were able to play it up so well in that era where we don't know where he comes from. That's that famous parts unknown that we referred to earlier. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know how much he weighs. We only know he is Dr. X and other wrestlers would line up and say, Hey, I want to take care of this guy. I'll be the one that will end the story. So during that first year, plus all the time, let us point out that they never let the I beat your world champion on TV angle fall by the wayside because he kept saying all along, I want a title match. So for the next year, 67 to August of 68, he is basically in the ring with guys like Igor, uh, Reggie Parks, again, Rene Goulet, Wilbur Snyder, Jack Lanza, uh, Eddie Sharkey, Bob Boyer, of course, the Crusher again, he wrestled the Bruiser. All these guys are trying to take off that mask. In August of 67, he finally gets, a year later, he finally gets his first title shot at Vern Gagne. Now, this is big because now Vern's got still got revenge on his mind, and Vern had kept saying all along, I'm not going to wrestle this guy until he proves himself because I only wrestle the top contenders as the world champion, which is a viable uh, scenario. You know, the champion doesn't go against just anybody. He wrestles the best of the best. So it made sense. So in August of 67, they have a match between Vern and Dr. X, and Vern actually loses his title to him. And in August of 68, basically to set up another rematch and to keep the, the momentum going for X. So Vern loses. Well, he's going to get a rematch, that famous rematch clause. And two weeks later, he's going to get a rematch. On the night of the rematch, that was set for the Minneapolis auditorium on a TV match. Dr. X, who is, let's point out, he is now the champion for this match leading into the defense to Vern later in the evening. He's on TV. They introduce him and then they introduce his opponent with absolutely no fanfare, no advance billing, no advance notice. Fans in this corner weighing in at 232 pounds from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, Billy Red Lions. Now, I remember, on a personal note, I just about fell on the floor because I knew about Billy Red Lions. 
He was a huge star all over the country. He'd been big wherever he wrestled as a baby face and very, very popular in Texas. And so this was to me, huge news. What other fans didn't know is that Billy Red Lions and Dick Byer in real life were brother-in-laws and they had teamed together as Byer and Lions back early in their careers back in Buffalo territory. And they had teamed together uh, and wrestled against each other when Dick became the destroyer. It was kind of interesting because when the destroyer went into California shortly after Billy Red would show up and become one of those latest guys that were going to try to unmask the destroyer. Same thing for Texas. Lions was huge in Texas as a babyface. So in comes the destroyer. Eventually he ends up working against Billy Red Lions. And it became apparent that they had this formula down where Lions would eventually come in. So on this TV match, average fans sitting at home, Lions is just another jobber on TV because they, they always had, you know, guys coming in and out, losing matches. Well, lo and behold, something really big happened. Lions got the best of him on this TV match and not only defeated him on TV, but beat him with his own finishing hold, the figure four leg lock. The studio audience is up, you know, excited. The announcers are really playing this up. Oh my gosh, this new guy, Red Lions, beating Dr. X with his own finishing hold. Dr. X is livid because he's defending to Vern later in the evening. And of course, Lions just beat the champion to boot. So we get to the match with Vern that evening. Vern wins back the title, which was expected anyway. And Dr. X is livid because he comes out and he said, they threw this ringer at me, this Lions. I want this guy and I'm going to tear him from limb to limb. And the nice beauty of it was they had a ready-made feud with Billy Red Lions, who now is over like hotcakes in the territory. And they had a long series of battles against each other. Their matches, Glenn, were, if I were to pick some of the best matches I ever saw, Lions and, and uh, Doc were one of them. They, they just always put on the greatest matches. Just to that that chemistry, man, and the way they were yep. able to again to uh, again you were you were a little bit on the smarter side that you knew uh, you know a, a Billy Red, but the way they were able to insert him into the mix, a guy that kind of for some fans probably just fell out of the sky, you know. To be honest, yeah. with the way of communications were, I mean, I, again, these are genius little moves. They weren't big splashy things, but the way they had the impact on the long term was was genius, and I I really think that that's the patience of 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 those old of the older past days of wrestling, especially in these storylines, I mean, God, the patience of it and the way it paid off, it really was something that is definitely taken for granted these days. You know, I want to I want to say this on a personal level. Now, it was around this time between sixty seven and sixty eight when Doctor X was over huge here, and at that time, I am a uh, sixteen seventeen year old kid. And I, had, I think I've mentioned this on some previous shows, kind of how, you, how I got involved with this stuff. 
I was on a regular basis when I would attend the matches, I would buy the wrestling program for the evening, which was either sports facts or wrestling facts, depending on Minneapolis or St. Paul. And I would buy it because I saved them. They were part of my collection. But I also, for whatever reason, started buying, uh, initially it was just three or four extra programs, but eventually I was up to 10, 12, and then 15 and 18 programs that I would buy. Now, bear in mind, there were only a quarter in those days. Of course, only a quarter in those days, you know, it was like a couple bucks today. So, I mean, put it into perspective. Nonetheless, that was how, uh, during the time between 67 and 68, that I had gained the attention of Marty O'Neill, who was the TV commentator since the 50s and the wrestling announcer at the, at the live sh- uh, house shows. And Marty, initially, he would just walk by me when I would be sitting in my seat. And, you know, you see the same people there all the time. Eventually, they do kind of take notice. And Marty would go by and, oh, quite a few times, he just said, hey there, young man, how you doing? Or, hi, young man. And that was it. One time, after he'd done this for quite a few months, he said to me, he said, I got to ask you a question. Why do you collect or why do you buy so many programs? And I told him why. I said, well, what I do is I take one and put it in my own file, but I also then send a program to a friend I have in St. Louis and I have you know, a person in Houston and I send one to San Francisco and they in turn send me their programs. Marty goes, I never realized somebody would do that. I said, well, that's the way I've been doing it. And then I get programs from all these other territories. So I know what's going on in different cities that other people don't. Lo and behold, I mean, there were other people like me, Glenn, that did that, but we were a very small minority that would do such a thing. And we, in essence, kind of created our own internet before it was there because we knew what was going on. Well, lo and behold, to, you know, to make this story short, Marty then said to me, I think it was the time after that, he said, uh, wanted to know if I would ride, wanted to ride with him to a small town show. He was going to be going down to Ortonville, Minnesota for a spot show to do the ring announcing. And he asked me if I wanted to go right along with him. I remember at the time I probably just about wet my pants because, you know, like who am I? And here's Marty O'Neill asking me if, you know, I wanted to ride along with him. I was very excited about it. And I ended up riding with Marty to boy, probably eight or 10 different cards over a period of time. We got a chance to talk while driving we went to Redwood Falls. We went to Mankato. We went to uh, Austin, Minnesota, uh, again, Ortonville, and, you know, some of these other towns and had a chance to talk with him. And Marty would, would share little things with me, but not always really break cafe, but we'd have these talks. And then he would say something like, well, you know, that's just between us now. And I never said a word. And we did talk about the destroyer or Dr. X being the destroyer. And I had made the comment to him. I said, you know, it's funny how people don't seem to recognize that it's the same guy. And Marty never confirmed or denied it, just kind of smiled and nodded his head. And so in 1970, we're going ahead a couple of years. That was the first time that I had a chance to actually 
meet and talk with Dr. X. And that definitely led to uh, eventually to, to this uh, friendship, this long term, you know, long standing friendship you had with, with Dr. X. We'll talk a little bit about that first, but I want to get a little bit left, uh, a, a little bit of time here to talk about what happened uh, to Dr. X towards the end of his AWA run around uh, into the earlier part of the 1970s before we talk a little bit about your friendship with Dick. Well, as we went into three years down the road, Dick had decided that uh, he wanted to take a break from the AWA and give the Dr. X gimmick a little bit, you know, because he'd wrestled against basically a who's who if you look at the list of opponents. I mean, it's, it's huge name after huge name. And he decided he wanted to take a little time away, and he actually self-promoted himself as the destroyer and set up matches around the country, around the world. He was going to take a world tour as the destroyer. And he set up matches in New Zealand and Germany and Australia and uh, just a ton of places. If I look at the results, I mean, he was very good at doing what he did. And he was going to take his family with him, and they were going to travel and see the world. So he went to Vern Gagne in June of 1970, and he said, I want to take a year off, so let's start working some sort of an angle here where I'm going to leave. Well, this is June. He, his actual ending in the AWA during this first run was in August of 70. And what they did first was they had him wrestle against, of all these wrestlers that he had beaten through the last three years now, you know, the Bill Watts and Lyons and Bastine and you name it, they figured they're going to bring in one guy that can certainly not only unmask him, but knows the secrets of the mask because he himself had been a masked man during his career. And AWA fans now, because the promoters were reminding them of this, were remembering Mr. M, who had been a huge masked wrestler in the AWA in the early uh, 60s. And in fact, even held Vern Gagne's title as world champion for about eight months during that, that run as the masked Mr. M. Under the mask, it was Bill Miller, Dr. Bill Miller, the veterinar veterinarian, and uh, just a great, great wrestler in his own right his entire career. They didn't, they didn't, they even acknowledged, Glenn, that Mr. M was Bill Miller, but he was coming back specifically to unmask Dr. X because he knew the secrets of the mask, so to speak. And he came back in wearing his Mr. M mask. This was in June of, of 1970. Well, during that first time, lo and behold, Dr. X decided that he needed a partner to help him out. And he come up with a lookalike partner, a carbon copy partner, same ring outfit, same mask, same, basically same build. And he called him Double X. I mean, you got Dr. X, and I got to have Double X, right? So here comes Dr. X to ringside. Double X is in his corner. And Double X, and he had had a couple of tag matches before this. And uh, he's wrestling against Mr. M. Well, in that first match, during the melee, the referee got knocked down. That's a surprise, right? But that was a great gimmick back in the day. And 
As the referee is knocked down, Dr. X is knocked outside the ring, falls onto the floor, and goes under the ring, so to speak, and out, then comes back out. Gets back in the ring, a few more minutes, Mr. M beats him and rips off his mask. Well, lo and behold, fans are screaming and yelling to the referee that it's not Dr. X. He's still under the ring, and it was Double X. His Double X partner was Jim Osborne, who was a wrestler who had come into the AWA as Osborne a month or two earlier. And basically, Dick went to the promotion and said, let me use him. We'll do this Double X gimmick. And they, they made it successful. So Mr. M had unmasked the wrong man. And once again, Dr. X had saved his mask. So you know what? A rematch is in order. And this time, Double X would be barred from the ring area. Well, Dr. X dispatched Mr. M, got by him. And once again, it seems like nobody is ever going to be able to take this mask off of X. Around that same time, Dr. X was hooking up with Jack Lanza in some tag matches. And Jack was Blackjack by then, managed by Bobby Heenan. And they had a few tag matches. Dr. X was involved uh, in a feud at the time with Paul Diamond, who was one of the latest baby faces who had come in. They actually, between June and August of 70, in a couple of the smaller cities promoted by the AWA, allowed Diamond to unmask Dr. X because it was coming near the end. And every city in those days would get to see an unmasking, at least the bigger cities. And uh, so Paul Diamond did unmask him. The irony of that, though, is that when Dr. X's mask was pulled off, he was revealed under the name of Bruce Marshall, a made-up name. Dick Beyer was not part of the equation. And it was done. Teaming with Lanza in the Minneapolis area on TV wrestling, they were going to be signed for later in the evening against uh, Billy and uh, uh, Red Bastine and Pepper Gomez in a tag match. So it would have been Lanza and Doc against Gomez and Bastine. Well, on that TV match, for whatever reason, Dr. X and Jack Lanza are having little few miscues in their tag team work, and Heenan is kind of reprimanding Dr. X. And before you know it, Lanza and Heenan attack Dr. X on TV. Dr. X immediately demands that he wants a match against Lanza. For the Minneapolis Auditorium, they actually changed the main event that night after the wrestling TV show, and they put Gomez and Bastine against Hedig and Lars Anderson and had Lanza go against Dr. X in an impromptu match. Lanza beat him to a bloody pulp. His, match, his mask was actually removed. It was cut, and he was all bloody. He threw a towel over his face. He was hauled out of the ring. Lanza, of course, got the victory. Well, now the guessing game was on. Who was the mass man? Did anybody see his face? You know, and I remember they used the, the sim similar things like, well, it looked like it was Gene Kaniski, and it looked like it might have been Buddy Rogers. And, you know, they were throwing names out at random. 
Dr. X comes out probably a week or so later, and he gets in the interview area, and he's demanding, demanding as loudly as he'd ever been that he wants another match against Jack Lanza. I want Lanza. Carbo comes out and says, ah, we, we just can't put the match together and Jack's not available and he's probably not going to want the match. And Dr. X gets very vocal and said, listen, and again, I'm paraphrasing on this. I'm not quoting exactly. It's just basically what happened. But X says, you know, Carbo, for the past three years, I have wrestled everyone you've tossed against me, everyone who wanted my mask, and I've you owe me a favor. I want a match with Lanza. Carbo says, I can't do it. Lanza says, you're not listening. Or Doc says, you're not listening to me. I want Lanza. And I want this match so bad that I'll give you what you've wanted for three years. I'll take off my mask before I wrestle him. Well, of course, Carbo goes, you what? You got yourself a match. And we had this match made right on TV. Now the big question is for the St. Paul card is will Dr. X keep his promise? Will he unmask before this match with Lanza? In St. Paul only that night in August of 70, before the match begins, Marty O'Neill comes into the ring, as does Dr. X, who stands in the ring corner with his arms folded as he'd always done. And interestingly, Promoter Eddie Williams is at ringside for St. Paul, and Marty starts telling the fans a little bit about the masked man, that he was a former swimming coach from Syracuse University, great amateur wrestler, and he introduced him as Dick Beyer. In St. Paul only, we got Dick Beyer. At that moment, Dick pulled his mask off of his face, handed it to promoter Wally Carbo, and wrestled that match against Lanza as Dick Beyer. I actually took two pictures with my little, if you remember the little Kodak cameras with the flash cubes on them? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But I have two pictures of him without the mask as Beyer that night. Lanza beat him to a pulp, pretty much showed that he was the master that night and beat Dr. X one, two, three, and X was gone for the next couple of weeks on TV. They mentioned it in the actual printed program as well. You know, where is Dr. X? Will he ever appear? They never mentioned Dick Beyer again. It was just that one night. And we were the only city again to have Dick Beyer. The other two or three cities got Bruce Marshall with not the same scenario. But the bottom line was Dr. X was gone. Oh, wow. How very special it was to be able to have that, be able to be at that card. That only that one time where he did take off the mask to, to wrap up the saga of Dr. X. You know, we only have uh, but a couple of minutes, George, and I want to, I mean, we could talk uh, about Dick Beyer for hours on end. I know that to be a, a natural born fact, but I really want to allow some time for you to talk a little bit about uh, just 
how much Dick meant to you uh, as a friend, as a person? I mean, you you were a fan, and you had one of the things that not a lot of people can uh, say, that you got, got a chance to meet your hero, but you also had a chance to really get to know him and his family and really get to be a part of his life. And really, I mean, I remember going out to CAC when you uh, received your historian's honor uh, to have Dick, uh, the destroyer, put you over like that. I mean, there's something really there and something really special. And I want you to, and I'm going to block out a few t- uh, minutes of time here before the show wraps, to talk about just how much Dick Byer meant to you, my friend. Floor is yours. Well, you know, it's funny because I get asked all the time by people through the years, they say, well, who, who was your favorite wrestler? And I've had many favorite wrestlers. Favorite meaning who I like the best. And I can name Nick Bockwinkel and Larry Hennig and Billy Red Lions and Cowboy Bill Watts and Dutch Savage and Hard Boiled Haggerty and Stan Kowalski. Those are names that are constants. They were friends. They were, they were uh, also my favorite wrestlers. But always, number one, if push comes to shove, since 1967, when he came on the AWA scene, I always liked the bad guys and I was always partial to mass guys and Dr. X became my personal favorite wrestler. I liked his wrestling. I liked his interviews. I was very fortunate to get a chance to meet him in person in April of 1970 when just by chance I was putting together on behalf of the Cottage Grove, Minnesota Police Reserve Department a fundraising wrestling card at my high school in Cottage Grove. And this was something that, that, you know, a lot of smaller towns did. They put on spot shows. I went to the wrestling office in April or in February of 1970 with one of the police officers. And we talked about setting a date for a card and trying to put a card together. What was involved? Lo and behold, they asked me, who did you have any idea which wrestlers you might want? The first name that came out of my lips, and I will admit it was selfish at the time because this was the one guy I wanted there was Dr. X. Bill Casisto, the matchmaker at the time in the wrestling office said, well, we'll see if we can look at the calendar here and we'll see if he's available and you know, any other wrestlers. And I said, and I thought about this, And I guess I never thought about it at the time, but I was actually promoting a wrestling card and putting it together based on what I had seen. Pepper Gomez had been in our territory and he was, uh, basically the, the number one baby face at that moment in time. I said, well, it'd be great if we could have X against Pepper Gomez. Okay. Again, we'll see what we can do. Well, lo and behold, I got my main event. Dr. X against Pepper Gomez. Now, I had not met either wrestler at that point in time, personally. So they told us that we'd have that match, and then the next match they were going to give us was Blackjack Lanza against Big Bob Windham. And then we'd have an opening match with two TV talent wrestlers. It was Kenny J and Lee Matson. That was my card. And that was typical for a spot show to have three matches. So the night of the match in April, of 70. I'm in my high school and I get to be the ring announcer for this thing too. So I'm excited. You know, here I am, I'm 19 years old. I'm announcing a wrestling card. I mean, you could imagine as a kid, this was just like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. My life could end tonight and I'm happy, right? We're about a half hour before the matches are to begin in the gymnasium. 
And I don't recall who it was, but somebody said to me, they want to see you back in the locker room. I don't know who they was at that point. I go back to the locker room. And if you're familiar with locker rooms, you know, there's always a set of lockers and then there's a bench in front of the lockers, just a bench that the, the people sit on and stuff, change it into their outfits and stuff. Well, I walk into the locker room and sitting in this L-shaped locker room bench type situation, on one bench is Dr. X in his mask. On the other bench is sitting Pepper Gomez. Now, if I ever had any doubts that wrestling may not be 100%, that was my first clue that, you know, you got the baby face and the heel mm -hmm. sitting next to each other before the card. Dr. X was basically in charge of the show that night for the guys. And he said to me, he said, we've got a problem. He says, Gomez here can't wrestle. He's got an upper ear infection. I didn't know what the heck that meant. I did know that Gomez was legitimately there. And so my immediately thought was, you know, well, they didn't tell me his plane was canceled in Chicago or didn't reach his plane. So, you know, maybe he's really sick. And I said, okay. And Dr. X says, well, that's not the only problem we've got. He says, Jack Lanza's not going to be able to make the card. He's in Chicago. And I'm thinking, oh, man, real quick, I'm like, what? So now I don't have Lanza in my second match, and they've taken Gomez out of the first match. Here's what Dr. X said to me. He said, so here's what we're going to do. All the time he's talking as, Dick, you know, as Dr. X in that gruffy voice of his. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have, uh, for our main event, we're going to have me and Wyndham against Matson and Jay in a tag team match, and then we'll have two preliminaries. I don't know where I got it from, but uh, or the courage, but immediately I said, "Could we do it a different way?" And Doctor X looked at me through those little peepholes in his mask, and he says, "Well, what do you want to do?" I said, "Well, could we put you and Matson against Wyndham and Jay?" in the tag team match main event. He said, that's what you want to do. We'll do it. I don't, we don't care. And I said, well, I just thought it'd make more sense. Cause then we've got a, a big name on each team X on one Wyndham on the other. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. We'll do it that way. Well, I'm here to tell you that the match turned out really well. I mean, they really performed in that tag team match and in their respective singles matches underneath it. I think every fan went away happy afterwards, the match is over. And I was back there one more time with Dr. X and I just thanked him. I said, Hey, thanks for doing it that way. He said, doesn't make any difference to us. Glad we could get it done. And we were friends throughout the next, uh, then he was gone, you know, six months later for a whole year. So I hadn't seen him until he came back in 19, late 71, early 72. But, he remembered me. We talked often. We were friends. And we did stay that way for the remainder of his time here. But um, that's where it gets tough, Glenn, because I've had many, many favorite wrestlers, and you become friends with them. They're your heroes. And, you know, it's the old story. When they call you friend, that becomes special. But Dick was always special. 
Um, I had him at my house, sat in, in my wrestling office and talked wrestling. I remember him saying how great he thought the Lions and Bastine was, team was. He said that was the best babyface team he'd ever seen. And he said that his team with hard-boiled Haggerty was his favorite tag team partner. And, of course, we saw Haggerty and Dr. X wrestle, but as the Destroyer, they were a tag team in California. And he said they were, it was his favorite partner. But Dick always became a friend. I'd mentioned uh, to another person that I was talking to that, you know, he had sent uh, pictures to me at different times. And when, uh, when it came time in, in 2013, as you alluded to, uh, I was going to get the historian award at Cauliflower Alley, and that that's a big deal. It's you know, you know we always like to be honored. It's special, but I had approached Dick Byer a couple of months earlier uh, when we were attending a reunion in the Gulf Coast territory, and we were talking. And I said, you know, Dick, I'm going to be getting the historian award in in April, and I have a favor to ask of you. And of course, Dick said, I know you're getting that. He, and I said, well, I have a favor to ask. I was wondering if you might consider being the presenter of the award to me. And I always, when I tell this story, I always like, I wish that you could see what Dick did. We were sitting at a table. My hand was on the table as I asked him this. Dick took his left hand and put it on top of my right hand and said to me, and this I quote, it would be an honor. Now I tell you at that moment, that meant more to me than the actual award itself because Dick said it would be an honor. And you're right. He did at the reunion. Um, I did receive the award and he did put me over. In fact, Glenn, you were there. I think if I recall correctly, you were at our table. Yes, I was. I got to a firsthand account of that and I got to see it in person and man, Wow, that was a moment, my friend. That was like, I, I could really tell. I could just see just how, just looking and, and seeing how you were beaming just because you had, I mean, the award was the one thing, but I could just feel that, uh, that 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 just pride that you had, that you had your friend, a guy that you grew up, I mean, you got to discover in the AWA at a, at a young age and to be able to have all of this uh, friendship through the years. There was such a genuine moment, man. That That was great to be a part of, and I thank you for letting me be a part of that. Well, and you know, the thing was, I mean, I had many favorites. I could have, I could have been happy with Larry Hennig doing the presentation because in those days they'd let the, the, the honoree choose who they wanted to uh, present the award. And I could have asked Nick Bockwinkle. I would have been honored with Nick doing it. I mean, these guys, Red Bastine was there. I, I could have been honored with all of these guys. And my number one choice obviously was Bayer. And when he did that, it really meant something. But through the, through the years, I, you know, I go to my file cabinet and I can go to my Dick Byer files and I have countless Christmas cards that I got from Dick through the years with personal notes in them. I would talk to Dick every year on his birthday. I always made it a point to call him on July 11th and wish him happy birthday. We would chat for a little bit. Whenever he would come into town, he'd come often for the Kenny J. Histiocytosis fundraiser uh, benefits, and Dick would come in. We'd always talk. I'd see him at CAC, and he would always have me sit at his table. I mean, he just was a personal friend. And I got his Christmas card this past December, and he, um, 
he had put a note in there that he was still recuperating from his heart surgery and he was not as healing as fast as he wanted to. And he was quite sure he wasn't going to be able to make CAC this year. And of course I'd last talked to him in July uh, of last year for his birthday. So I assumed he wasn't going to be here. Well, a few weeks ago, I saw some comments on Facebook about, in fact, our mutual friend, Brian Last, had actually asked me, do I know what's going on with Dick? And I had no idea at this point. I'd been off the internet for a couple of days. I, um, I got in touch with Kurt Hennig, or Kurt Hennig, Kurt Beyer, Dick's son. And he said, well, dad is taking it slow. And he's just, he's really slowed down. And, you know, we're not going to be able to make CAC. So the very next day, I said, you know what, I'm going to call and see what's going on. I called his house, Wilma, his wife. She answered, and right away she said, hi, George. So I call her ID, I guess. But we talked for about 40 minutes. I couldn't talk to Dick because he was now in hospice. He was unresponsive to family members. She said he was just resting and the family's all around him. And we don't know if he knows us or not, but he's not responding. The only person he responded to was, was a guy named Dennis DePaulo. And Dennis was the son of Ilio DePaulo, an old wrestler from the 50s and 60s, of which Dick Beyer and DePaulo were longtime friends in uh, Buffalo territory. So, and, and Dennis had actually sat at our banquet table uh, at the 2016 CAC reunion with Dick and Wilma and Kurt and a uh, couple of other friends. So anyway, I told Wilma, I said, well, please say hi to him for me. Tell him I called. And I told her to take care of herself. I said, I know this is really tough for you. And, you know, the caregiver also feels this. And I got off the phone. I ran out, got a nice card, one of these blank cards that you can write your own notes in and then send them off. I put all my sentiments in there and sent it off to him. The very next day at about one o'clock, I had a message on my phone from Wilma. She said that she was sorry to report that Dick had passed away um, at noon, their time. And uh, I, I tell you, Glenn, no wrestler passing uh, really hit me hard, hard like this one did. I mean, I've lost so many of these great friends, the Hennigs and Bachwinkles and Stan Kowalski and Bastine and Billy Lyons and just so many. And, and many you and I have talked about through the years we've been doing our show. Dick Beyer, uh, this one, I, I swear, I had, I had Kleenex with me the rest of the day. I was wiping my eyes. I couldn't write anything on Facebook. I couldn't actually put anything down because every time I did, I sincerely teared up. So end result is Dick has left us. The legacy he leaves behind is one that is not only a phenomenal story, but one that of all of the wrestlers, and I, and I will tell you this, there are many wrestlers who can tell you, well, I didn't like that, that, that SOB or this or that. I have never heard a single wrestler ever say one bad word about Dick Beyer. He, he was loved by his fellow workers, and he was so kind to fans and friends. 
Um, it's just a, uh, it's a blessing that I had the opportunity to know him. And I got word this morning, right before, in fact, right before we were going to tape today for the show, uh, Kurt Beyer sent me a message saying that uh, he and Wilma and Dick's daughter, Chris, are planning to, going to make plans to get to CAC in April next month. And uh, he wanted to tell me that I was welcome to sit at their table with them if that works out. I will be going to CAC, and it's going to be bittersweet because the, the, the doc, he always signed his pictures, Dick Doc Des, to me, <laughs> putting his three names in there. And it's going to be uh, bittersweet that he's not there, but uh, he'll be there in spirit. And I am forever grateful that I had such a great friend, and I had the opportunity to see him wrestle, even more so to have him as a friend and have him call me his friend. There's no greater reward. And I'm, I know in, the, uh, in heaven, that main event is going on right now. He's, he's taken care of. So thank you. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, George, for uh, being a part of this uh, tribute to, to Dick Beyer. Uh, it's time for us to go. We went uh, well into overtime, but that's okay. When it comes to a special people to talk about and celebrate, uh, what's a few extra minutes in the game of life? For wrestling Memories Then and Now and for George Shire, I'm Glenn Broggett. Thank you so much for uh, letting us be a part of your day.